Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. We spoke the last three weeks on some kind of tough subjects to preach about. Um, membership, giving. Well, today it's going to be even tougher. <laughs> Talking about conflict. Um, and what does the Bible say about conflict? Um, I personally hate sweeping. Who likes to sweep? Oh, Roy does. I'm inviting you over to my place. <laughs> or oh, the broom, yeah, just sweeping with the broom. Yeah, Monica does, cool. I, I can't stand it because you know why? When it comes to getting the little dustpan and picking it up, there is always a line of dust. You've noticed that? No matter how hard you try and you, you go in different directions, there's always a line. There's actually a word for it. It's called frust. (laughs) Dust, frustration, molded into one. I can't stand frust. You can't get rid of it. It's there to bug you. It's part of a sinful world that won't, uh, will never be replenished until the return of Jesus. Um, I can't stand it. But you know what? It's frustrating. And it's kind of like conflict in church. No matter how hard you try, and no matter how good a church and how good-looking the senior pastor is. There just seems to be conflict. It just happens. Isn't that true? With all the good intentions we might have. You know, a, a friend of mine once said, conflict is like children. <laughs> I kind of laughed at that initially. I was like, yeah, really? Um, but we all think our children are the best in the world, but we know that inevitably, no matter how good a child is, they're always going to cause just a little bit of problem, aren't they? And it's like a church. No matter, good, no matter how good a church is, there's always going to be a bit of conflict happening in it. You can't, no matter what angles you do, no matter what systems you put in place, when you work with people, you will always encounter conflict. There are two things that cause conflict. People, we're all human beings. We're all broken people. Um, you can't hide that. There's also Satan, and Satan loves to cause conflict. So two elements that kind of worked against sometimes God's will and God's work uh, in this world. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? The Bible said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Do you have to wear a blue helmet? With UN written on it? Well, what's a peacekeeper? Uh, what's a peacemaker, sorry? Any ideas? One who helps in the process of reconciliation. Wow, that's a good one. One who helps in the process of reconciliation. Yep, definitely. Empathy. Has empathy? Yeah. Mediator. A mediator? Absolutely, you need to know the both sides of the situation, even when you are one of the situations. Okay, we need to make a distinction. A peacemaker is not a peacekeeper. Okay, there's a big difference between the two. A peacekeeper does anything to keep the peace. And I don't want to offend anyone, but Kiwis are the best at peacekeeping. When you're dealing with the frost, you know what you do with it? Sweep it under the rug. No, you guys aren't good at that. Sweep it under the rug. It's okay, it's just underneath. Peacekeepers do that. They don't care about the issues. They're not interested in resolving the problems. They're not sometimes even interested in reconciliation. They're just interested in keeping the peace because I don't want to mess my hairstyle. Can't go wrong with me now, can you? (laughs) But, but that's the truth of it. And sometimes in church, what we do is we try to keep peace. Oh, let's not fight. Why can't we all get along? You know, there are new religions popping up. You know, you'll see the sign that says coexist. Everyone see that on the back of cars. Let's just keep together and be happy. And, and yes, that's awesome. But you know what? That's a fantasy. It, it doesn't happen that way. Peacemakers are intentional about peace 
But here are some of their characteristics. They deal with the issues at hand. They're intentional about dealing with the issues. Okay? They're also sensitive to the issues. Now, sometimes we find ourselves logging heads with that other person. My way, their way, we fight over it. But to be intentional about being a peacemaker is being sensitive to the fact that you might actually be wrong. And that the person is more important than the thing. Okay? Sensitive to the issues. Prepared to hold people accountable. One of the biggest problems with the United Nations today is they don't hold nations accountable. Most people today think that the United Nations is a farce. You know why? Because they'll just scream from Brussels, you know, hey, this is wrong. Well, you've got to be doing this. But then they do nothing about it. They don't hold people accountable. Being a peacemaker actually means to hold people accountable. But also are prepared to accept responsibility. Being a peacemaker also means acknowledging that you might get it wrong that you might actually hurt people, that maybe your actions weren't godly. Peacemaker looks at both sides, regardless of people's reactions. Peacemaker. God has called us to be peacemakers. But we cannot, cannot think that just sweeping under the rug solves our issues it doesn't make our life comfortable it actually makes us live in a fantasy world we're ignoring the issues at hand now that doesn't mean we need to go out and fight everything and everyone in romans chapter 12 verse 18 it says if it's possible as far as it depends upon you live at peace with everyone you can't force people but you can force yourself God's interested in your attitude and the way you are and who you are before him. So as far as it's possible for you, live at peace with everyone. Peacemaking is also not a feeling. A lot of us uh, today, feelings have become a glorified deity in uh, measurement in everything we do in our lives. When I have young married couples, I had a number of them. I had one a few years ago. They were, they were about to get married and we were doing some premarital counselling. And I asked her, I said, what is it that brings you together? Oh, I just, I just love him. I said, and? Oh, it's, it's just, I just feel this thing when I'm around him. And I'm like, and? I just, I just, I, I'm so, I, I feel so good when I'm with him. He makes me feel... I oh, like a woman, not me. The, her. Yeah. And I'm like, and? And she's like, what and? That, that, that's all I need, isn't it? I'm like, no, because you know what? There are going to be times when he's not going to make you feel like that anymore. And so what is it that's going to hold you two together? It's not going to be the feeling anymore, believe me. 20 years of it, you're going to be over it pretty quickly. There's got to be more than feeling here. You with me? Jeremiah, in chapter 6, verse 14, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They cover it up. It's okay. I feel good about this. It's okay. There's peace now. No, there isn't. Let's get down. Let's get to the nitty-gritty about it. Let's deal with this appropriately. Let's deal with this on a God level, not on a human level. And that's what peacemakers do. What was the first sin after humanity was expelled from the Garden of Eden, apart from making babies? Which you think they weren't, they shouldn't have even thought about it, but they did, and here we all are. So what is the first sin after they're expelled from the Garden of Eden? Sorry? Cain killed Abel. That was the result. It was still a sin. Murder is a sin. But that was a result of what sin? He had a wrong heart, but let's be more specific. Jealousy 
What was that? You said jealousy too? Anger? Huh? Hate? How was he treating his brother? How was he dealing with a situation that he felt in conflict about? How did he resolve to solve the situation? He ended up murdering his brother. Huh. The root of a lot of conflict everywhere in this world stems from, I believe, that one incident where there is either jealousy, where there is failure, where there is maybe I'm not good enough and they're better than me and I've got to prove myself. Um, the me factor comes into play. All these things are kind of, I can imagine Cain struggling through it because you know why I've seen so many people, including myself, struggle with the same thing Cain struggled with. Now, a lot of us don't go to that extreme of murdering people. But you know what? Sometimes in our bouts, in our minds, you know, we murder people. We may not physically kill them, but in our heads, how dare they? How do they? I mean, oh, I can't believe it. With me? It's interesting. When it comes to the book of Genesis, okay, this is an incredible book, but it starts off in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning, God created. He made. I mean, it's just an incredible beginning. And guess how it ends? The very last verse, chapter 50, verse 26. So Joseph died. That's a big turnaround, isn't it? And in those chapters, all those chapters, there is this plethora of human brokenness, all beginning from that moment in the garden. And they go through and you see conflict after conflict after conflict. And sometimes you scratch your head and you think, what are these people doing? What are these people about? How are they coming up with all these things? I mean, Abraham doesn't want to deal with conflict. Do you know how he sweeps it under the rug? He tells everybody his wife's his sister. Okay, lots of love there, Abraham. Saving your neck so your wife could save it for you. But guess what? His son does the exact same thing. Where did he learn that from? Conflict after conflict. But you know where it culminates? It culminates in chapter 37 with this solitary figure alone in a pit. His name is Joseph. And if we want to understand conflict, if we want to understand how to deal with conflict, this one person in this book that really is all about conflict, it's about promises and all this kind of creation and all that, but when you see humanity in its very essence, you think, oh my goodness, what is going on here? It culminates with this one person, Joseph. For those of you who don't know the story of Joseph, born into his family, one of many brothers. His dad loved him so much, thought he was the best. Who's, who's a brother or sister here who feels like they weren't the favoured ones? Yeah, I'm going to put my hand up at that one. Yeah, there's a few of us are putting our hands up. You know, my sister could never do anything wrong. She was five years younger than me. I was the man of the house, so my dad said. So I had to live up to it. I had to be the man. Yeah, poor Daniel, you're the only man of the house. <laughs> you're the only kid in the house. <laughs> well, at least yeah, yeah. you don't have to worry about sisters. Believe me, I had to worry about sisters. Um, that was trouble. And she was always right, always good. She could never do anything wrong. I, I knew how Cain felt. I knew how the brothers of Joseph felt. Because sometimes you just want to... I used to kick her. Poor thing. I mean, I, we're, we're great friends now. But yeah, she was well, just kick her. <laughs> you know, um, it was just, just the way it is. You know, that sibling rivalry. I couldn't stand it. And as you got older, you mature and you start to realize, no, she's actually pretty cool. But I can understand how Joseph's brothers, the brothers, there was a whole bunch of them. There was, you know, 11 of them there. And they all just thought that Joseph was the worst. He gets this brand new coat, you know, nicely colored, beautiful coat that shined, glowed in the dark, the whole thing. You know, and, and everyone loved, and he loved it, and he would show it off, and then he would, you know, he would show off how, how great dad treated him, and the rest of them had to work. So the brothers got so jealous and so angry, guess what they did? Pretty much what Cain did. 
They wanted to kill him. But the older brother, feeling a bit guilty about it all, says, let's not kill him, let's just throw him down a pit. And then we'll sell him off to traders, you know, slave traders. And, hey, yeah, thanks. That's, that's really cool. Love you, bros. Yeah, awesome. So poor old Joseph is stripped away from his home, from everything that he knows, into a foreign land, thrown in prison, gets falsely accused, goes through what really is. I mean, you want to talk about counseling? You think Joseph needed counseling? At the end of that, what do you think? (laughs) Uh, You know, the poor guy. Sometimes we feel just like Joseph. People have a tremendous effect on our lives, whether we like it or not. Joseph's life was changed completely not by his choosing, but by those around him. And everybody in this room has had their lives shaped in some way or someone, by someone or something, whether you liked it or not. I grew up vowing, I'm not kidding you, vowing I would never be like my dad. And yet I look in the mirror and I hear myself talking and I think, I'm my dad. How did that happen? I was intentional about not like being, but I look like him. I act like him. I sometimes react like him. Ah, It's like a computer virus. How did it get there? And for some of us around us, we don't know how much people have affected us. And that taints us in an incredible way. Eugene O'Neill wrote in his autobiographical play, A Long Day's Journey into Night, he says this, None of us can help the things that life has done to us. They are done before you realize it. And once they are done, they make you do other things until at last everything comes between you and what you'd like to be and you've lost your true self forever. Kids can be very idealistic. I'm reading a book called Killing Bono about a guy who grew up and went to school with Bono, who's the lead singer of a big band called U2. And he wants to kill Bono because Bono has stolen his life. It's a joke, it's a parody, it's a whole thing. But he goes through the book where they had both started together and they were both supposed to become major musicians, but only Bono does, and he ends up working a desk job for the rest of his life. And he talks about circumstances out of his control that changes their paths. One goes to superstardom, the other one goes to banality and just ordinary life. A lot of things have an effect on who we are as people. Our parents, our relatives, our environment. You know, there are going to be a lot of kids growing up not realising how much the earthquake would have had an effect on their personality, on who they are. We as adults may be a little bit more grounded, but we don't realise how much that would affect a lot of the children. And we'll see that in the next 10 to 20 years. Was it their fault? And you know, that's going to play when it comes into conflict. Because the hurt or the pain that I felt as a kid by the way my parents treated me, or by the way the school treated me, or bullies, or, you know, that lost loved one, that's going to play an important factor on how I approach conflict. Are you with me? Here's Joseph. Oh, before I get to Joseph, let me, let me talk about this. We need to know and acknowledge this part of our lives. Can anyone here stand up and say, I I, I know what's affected my life. I acknowledge the influences, both positive and negative, who've made me the person I am today. Because if you can't see that, when it comes to conflict, you're not going to see your role in that role, in that conflict role. 
you're not going to see it. A lot of people, you know, I've had conflict with some people in this church. Fortunately, some of them are not here. But where we fought and we butted heads, come to apologize and say, hey, you know what, sorry, there's no apology back. Yep, you did that. Yep, that's the way you acted. You shouldn't have acted that way. I was only trying to do the right thing. And you think they have absolutely no idea how much they've hurt, how much they've acted. And a lot of that's because they don't see inside of them where they're at. Uh, Time magazine uh, wrote this article, and this was in the early 20th century. Front page of their magazine, it said, what's wrong with the world with a big question mark? Don't think we've been talking about this just the last decade or two. They've been talking about this for a century now. What's wrong with this world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote back very simply with one or a couple of words, and he said, I am. I am what's wrong with this world. He's not responsible for the whole world. But in part, he's saying and acknowledging that he is. We need to understand that. We need to know that what's wrong with this world has, in some measure, our fault, our blame, our actions have caused it to be what it is. Now, this is a difficult thing for us to understand, but you do realize we are broken people, right? Turn to the person next to you, let's see how many will actually do this, and tell the person next to you, you are a broken person. <laughs> You're a broken person. You're a broken person. Okay, if you are not... If you don't think you are a broken person, put your hand up. Uh, I've got one hand that's gone. If you don't think you are a broken person, put your hand up. Because if you don't think you're a broken person, then that means you don't need Jesus, you don't need God, and you don't need any of us around you. We are all broken people. A lot of the times, not by our own doing but by the people around us who have shaped us to be who we are. Now, through the love and grace of Jesus Christ, we can be made whole again. We can be made whole and right before God. But while we're on this earth, we will always be broken. The difference of having Jesus in your life is you know that. And you acknowledge that. And you have a a third eyesight, in a sense, to say, hey, who am I? Why am I acting this way? What's wrong? What's going on here? I'm called to be a peacemaker. Genesis 50, 17. Joseph, after being you know, thrown into this pit, after being shipped off and sold into slavery, put into a house, work in a house, ends up being falsely accused, thrown into jail. One thing or another, God works in his life and he doesn't work in one day or two days. He works in many years. That's another thing we need to understand. God will answer us, but sometimes it takes years. Okay? And so finally Joseph gets a break and, he's, and then Pharaoh makes him second in charge of the whole Egyptian empire. He's like right up the top there. And then there's a big famine happening in the land and, and the only ones that actually saved any food are the, the Egyptians, thanks to Joseph. And guess who shows up to his front door asking for food? His brother's. And they don't recognize him. They think he's long gone. And this is what... <laughs> After they find out it's Joseph, they, uh, they got a little bit of fear in them. And they say this, Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, Forgive your brothers for the great evil they did to you. So we, the servants of the God of your father begged you to forgive us. And when Joseph received the message, he broke down and he wept. He didn't weep from joy. He didn't weep from the fact that his brothers are asking forgiveness. No, he was angry. He was upset. There are tears of pain. It's okay to be upset. And it's okay to feel hurt. But you know one thing I've noticed about Joseph? It doesn't seem like when you read through those passages that anyone in that palace knew of Joseph's hurt. 
It seems like it's only Joseph that knows about it. In fact, there's one verse where he goes into a room and closes the door so that he can cry on his own. When we're hurt, when someone has hurt us, it's not an opportunity for us to nail them by going around to every person and telling them how much they've hurt us. That's not a peacemaker. Sometimes we feel like we need to met out our own justice on people. That we see people as large targets and we are with the arrows. You hurt me, now I'm going to get you back and make you feel the way I feel. Ain't that true? Joseph could have just gone around that whole palace. These are my brothers. You wouldn't believe what they did to me. And I think you'd have every right to be a little bit upset, don't you think? I mean, the poor guy, he went through hell, not for a couple of weeks or a couple of days, for a number of years. Lost everything he had. He had every right to complain to every servant in that place. But he didn't. Because he had one person, and that was God. And that's where he took his hurt, and that's where he took his sorrow, and that's where he took his pain. You know, it's interesting in church, it's just when there's conflict, people who really don't need to know anything about it, know about it. Ain't that true? I, I, I know about some of you and what you've done outside of church, I don't want to know about. But people tell me, why are you talking to them? Why are you coming to me? Is it, is it that I've got some sort of authority? You know... We've got to be aware of how we react when people do hurt us. And there is a way in which we need to do it in a godly way. And and, and look, you know, I'm the first to acknowledge we're human and we are broken and sometimes revenge is sweet. You know, but that's not the way God wants us to be. It goes against our very nature. And, And we trip up. I'm the first to put my hand up on that one. We trip up. But that should encourage us, not discourage us, encourage us to be more like what God wants us to be and gives me another opportunity to go say sorry. So here's Joseph, hurt. But he goes further. He leaves the correctings of wrong to God. He's not jumping on their case. He's not, with all the power that he had, he could have done so much. And he could have really paid them back tenfold. But he chose not to. He had them in his hands. And, you know, he's a human being. I'd imagine over the years, especially all his time in jail, How many times and how many ideas he would have come up of thinking of revenge if I ever catch my brothers again. Oh, I could do this, this, this and this. But when it came to the crunch, he says this. His brothers came to him and bowed low before him. We are your slaves. They said, but Joseph told them, don't be afraid of me. Am I God to judge and punish you? His time in jail didn't harden his heart. It softened it and realized that there's one God. He's all-powerful. He is a just God, and he'll make it right. He will fight my cause. He will fight my cause. You know why... Doctor, anyone know Dr. Phil? As of you, do you have Dr. Phil here in New Zealand? Yeah, there's a few. Yeah. There's Oprah and then there's Dr. Phil. You know what his famous phrase is? Anyone know what his famous phrase is? Get over it. This is the, most, the highest paid counsellor in the United States, which most probably in the world I would say then. And his words of wisdom are get over it. Not really counselling material there, is it? 
<laughs> I got a couple of counselors in here looking at me going, what? Get over it, the pulpit. I wouldn't go so far as to say get over it. But I would say hold on to your tongue and watch your actions because ultimately you'll begin to regret them. Because when you're in hurt and when you're in pain and you don't give it to God, that pain and that hurt is just going to keep building up in you. And then you'll say things and do things that you'll ultimately regret. When you seek to met out justice yourself and you don't leave it to God, I'll guarantee you that's only going to cause more pain and more hurt in your life. Inevitably will. You might have that moment of instant satisfaction and gratification, but the next day you'll wake up I was still with that hurt and still with that pain, but compounded even more. It may not seem logic to us, but I can't tell you this more than it will. And believe me, I've been there. I know how it feels to wake up the next morning after slogging a person down or knocking them out and thinking, yeah, now I feel good, you got it. And next morning waking up even worse than what I felt the day before and thinking, what a fool I am. What have I done? What have I done? So, that's all good, Rob. How do I handle this? How, how, do, we, how do we make this right? How do we become peacemakers in our community, in our church? The first thing we need to do is overlook minor offences. Now, <laughs> who can overlook minor offences? Uh, there's a few of us that put uh, what let's quantify what offenses minor mean, huh? Isn't that um, yeah, I guess. What am I committing to here? You know, minor offenses. You need to be aware of what's minor and what's major. Okay? Let go of the minors. Okay. You know, I, I get people here who say things to me and I just think, do they realise what they just said? And then I just think let it go. I know them. You know, I know there's no... There might be a bit of malice behind it, but they'll over it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Okay, minor offenses. There's a snappy remark. Just get over it. That's what I'm going to tell you. Get over it. It's okay. They didn't mean it. And if they did mean it, they'll be over it themselves. Don't put stipulations on, oh, if they don't come and ask for forgiveness, I'm going to hold it against them for the rest of their lives. Our assumptions are what kill us. Do you know that? Our assumptions are what kill us. That was the first thing I learned from a, from a, a wise old pastor who sat next to me and he said, no matter what you do, Rob, you're fighting a losing battle because you're fighting against presumptions. People will presume way, way beyond you. I'm like, how do I fix that? You can't. You just need to know when to let it go and when to hold them accountable. And what we need to do with our friends and our family here at Apawa is learn when to let it go and learn when to hold them accountable. And a lot of the times, in all honesty, let it go. I cop an email every once in a while that people don't agree with what I've said in my, in my sermon and they'll send me a pretty terse email. I know the person. Sometimes it's just like a red flag to a bull, you know, I'm going to get back at them. Get this. Now let me tell you how it is. I'm going to say it in Hebrew too. You know, um, you know, peep that, huh? <laughs> you know, and then I have to pull back and think, what an idiot, why'd I do that? Oh, man. You know, if I just let it go and say, yep, thanks for that. And let them cool off. And then afterwards, you know what? It's normal. There are other times, though, when you can't just let it go. And let me tell you what those are. First, if it is threatening their witness of who God is. If it threatens their, if what they're doing threatens their witness and your witness to who God is, that's something they need to be talked to. You need to go up to them and say, hey, dude, slap your wife in public like that. No, 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 cool. Let me just say that, huh? Why? Because you're a Christian and people are seeing the way you act. And I'm seeing the way you act and it's not helping me. You need to call them out on that. When it does hurt someone, 
When someone's hurt, if yourself or you see someone else being hurt, you need to pull them up on that. You need to say to them, this hurts. It's not cool. Don't think it's a minor offense if you're being hurt by it. You know, some of you are scratching your head, what's a minor offense? Well, if you're hurt by it, it needs to be said. Even if the other person might think of it as minor, it's still your hurt. And it needs to be addressed. And there's one more, which I've actually forgotten. But running right back over here. If it damages the relationship. If it damages your relationship with them, then you need to call them out on it. A good friend of mine did a few things. And, you know, there were many times when I just kind of overlooked some of the things he did to me. But this one thing just made me think, is he really my friend? Now, I could have overlooked it again and said, oh, it's just, it's just my mate, let him go. But no, this time I had to go to him and say, dude, I'm questioning our friendship. I'm questioning the love we have for each other. I need to tell you this hurt. It's not a minor offense anymore. I need to address them. And when that happens, when none of those things happen, that it's not a minor anymore, you need to go in private. Oh, sorry. There's a heart verse. Jeremiah 17, 9. That's what happens when you don't stand behind your notes and you're out here talking too much. Um, Don't rely on your heart. Your heart is deceitful. We talked a little bit about it before. Feelings, okay? Your feelings, eh, you don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your feelings. If you don't know whether it's the fence is a minor thing or not, seek out someone godly in your life. Hey, so-and-so did this to me. What do you think? Hey, dude, let it go. Or, hey, you need to go have a chat with them. Don't rely on feelings. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can understand it? Don't rely on your heart. It's hard to say, isn't it? Because we've been taught in this society in particular to depend on our feelings. Go in private. If there is an issue that requires you to confront someone, go in private. Jesus says, if another believer sins again, you go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. Alan, man, what you do to me, man? I didn't do anything to you. What's wrong with you? Dude, you said this and Oh, come on. I was just joking. Really? You were joking? But it hurt. Oh, come on. Get over it. I can't get over it. It hurts. Okay, I'm sorry, man. Seriously, I didn't mean to hurt you. Cool. We're over it. Done. Next. That's ideal. (laughs) Doesn't always happen that way. But before you start going off at someone for hurting you, Go have a chat with them. Tell them, hey, hello, you hurt me. You did this to me. Now that person might not treat you very nicely. They might treat you worse. But your responsibility first is to go to them. And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, take one or two with you. He even says two or three. He says this in Matthew eighteen sixteen. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you may say, you say, may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Sometimes it's healthy to bring somebody along who's not there to defend you. <laughs> Let me get this straight. I have had someone come with three people, and they all came to defend this one person, and I felt pretty cornered. I said, well, the Bible says bring two or three... Yeah, but you bring in two or three armed people to come and talk with me doesn't make me feel very hmm, wanting to have a chat with you. (laughs) Bring two or three who can be objective, who can see both sides, who can help you understand that maybe we're both talking on a different level. I'm talking down here, they're talking up there, and a person on the outside can see and say, hey, you guys are just missing each other. This is what I'm hearing him saying. This is what I'm hearing her saying. And you know what? Together, just kind of bring it back down to the... Oh, okay, cool. We got it. You know? That's the whole point of bringing one or two brothers or sisters with you. It's not to defend you. Hey, these guys have got my back. Come on, let's go get them. You know? 
uh, in situations of conflict, it seems like that sometimes. But it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be someone who has objective view, can hear both sides of the argument, and then say later on, hey, I heard them both, and I really think this is what's going on, or that's what's going on. And if that person still doesn't want to hear a bit of it, in fact, and continues to do it, then you take it to the church. Matthew eighteen seventeen says, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Now, <laughs> I've been in a church where they have taken it to the church on a Sunday morning. That's not what this passage is saying. It doesn't mean to haul them up front on a Sunday morning and say, you, we've taken two or three, they haven't listened, now listen to this. He says, take it to the leadership of the church, take it to the representatives of the church. And this time it would have been the apostles, but then, you know, as a church expanded, it would have been the leaders of the church. Take it to your leaders and say, hey guys, there's a disagreement in this family. We need to sort this out. I'm not feeling comfortable. I don't feel I can worship with this guy. I don't feel like I can connect with this guy. There is a bit of him, and they're not listening. They're not, they're not wanting to reconcile. In fact, there's, there's a bit of a chasm between us. In Hebrews 13, 7, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as, you must, as, as those who must give an account. Do this so that work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. That's what your leaders do. You take it to, to our board or to me or to your ministry leaders and just say, hey, look, there's something going on here and we're not working this out. And guess what we do if they don't listen to that? If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. How many times have you seen that happen in church? Some of you have been in church for many years. How many times have we gone to this last level? Has anyone been a part of it? I would guarantee that conflict has not been done well. That's a scary proposition. And for us, in the modern day, we say, but the church is all about love and respect and reconciliation. It is. But it also has a limit. It has boundaries, and we follow that. When a child in a home gets completely out of control and refuses to follow, when they hit 18, they're out the door. In church... If a person refuses, then you're not part of this community. You choo- you're choosing not to be part of this community. And there are many times, I've seen it happen three times in church, where we've gotten to this point. It's always caused division. And the reason why it's caused division because churches don't understand what church discipline's about. They don't see the biblical point of it. They say, we're all about love. We're all about reconciliation. Twice out of those three, just because we kicked them out didn't mean we stopped with them. In fact, we got mediators involved and we worked with one couple. We worked for three months mediating until at the end of it, we actually came to an agreement and reconciliation. But in those three months, they were out of the community because we felt that their presence was going to cause a lot of issues. Now, in America, it's easier to do that because they're actually quite conducive to authority. But in Australia and New Zealand, man, we have a hard time with authority. I just read in the news last night there was a party that broke out and spilled onto the streets and as soon as the police arrived, that was their opportunity to break glass and throw it at them. It was a riot. And I was like, wow, Kiwis are letting loose. What's up with that? Why? It's because it's authority. We don't react well to authority. It's a bad word. But there's a problem with that. If you believe in God, who is he? Who is he? Our father, yep. Our creator, yep. He's also our judge. He's an almighty God, all-powerful. And in, in especially the Baptist world, we've kind of relegated him into this loving Santa Claus type thing, which is it's good, but we've forgotten about the holiness of who God is. And what his expectations are for his community. 
I don't want to hark too much on this, but I think there needs to be a healthy understanding of authority. And an understanding that some things are acceptable and some things are not. And that ultimately, we can't have that in our community. I was talking with a friend of mine, it was just this last week. She's a youth pastor in one of our churches in town. And she's struggling because she's got a group of about six leaders, which is healthy. I thought, wow, you got six leaders, cool. And she said, yeah, but they don't really seem to care. They hardly ever come. I try to call a meeting and they're not around. I said, have you spoken to them? She said, yeah, but if I get too hard on them, I'm going to lose them. Okay, I said to them, what kind of an example are they setting for your kids? Yeah, I can see that. I said, no, I don't think you see it. Because from your kids, your future leaders will be. And if your future leaders see a non-committed, half-attempted, not even caring leader, what are they going to grow up to become? Exactly that. I said, in your position, you need to tell them, this is what you expect. This is what needs to be done. Not for me, but for the glory of his kingdom and so that we can raise leaders in our midst. But I'm going to lose them. You know what? Take the risk. Believe me, God will always step the people that need to come up. They will step up. In our church, we're called to be a family. You know, family's broken, I know. Family has their ups and downs. We have conflict every day, and we deal with it every day. But if a person chooses, and we've had one person in this church that I have personally kicked out, who's not a part of this church anymore, but if this person wants to lie, cheat, steal, that's great. I'll call them out on it. And if they continue to lie, cheat, steal, I'll get other persons around them and say, hey, this is not cool. And if they continue to lie, cheat and steal, I'm going to take it to my leadership team. And if they continue to lie, cheat and steal, they're out. Tough words. But I've got to watch over the flock. And Jesus' metaphor of a shepherd may not mean much to us today. Actually, I think it means more to us Kiwis than anyone else in the world because we understand what it means to not just have sheep but have livestock. And to be a shepherd and allow wolves amongst the sheep, you're going to decimate your sheep and you'll have a hard time taking the sheep anywhere. God has called us to watch over each other and to do conflict well. He understands that we're going to mess it up, and that's okay. As long as we we try to steer the boat in the right direction, protect each other and lift each other up. Uh, I'm sorry it's a hard word this morning. I I don't mean it to be. But we've got to be aware as a community that this is God's kingdom. That's what we're building here. We're not building Rob's kingdom. We're not building Alan's kingdom. We're not building anyone else's kingdom. We're building his kingdom. And, And in the midst of all that, Structures are going to be put in place so that that can happen. That's why when it comes to choosing leaders in our church, we better be certain that that's the leader God has called for us to have. We've got to set aside this idea of having nice leaders and start thinking about good leaders. You with me? We tend to think of people as, oh, he's a really nice bloke or she's really, really nice. We don't want just nice people as leaders. We want good leaders. Leaders called by God. That we can then put our hand up and say, yes, they've been affirmed by God. Let them lead. And one of the reasons why some of us have a hard time with leadership is because maybe we're not choosing good leaders. We're choosing nice leaders. But they've got to make these tough calls. And so we better be right in the leaders that we choose. I think we've done a pretty good job, honestly. And I think our church has grown a lot over the years. I think we've done an awesome job. And when I hear what's happening around the country, uh, sorry, I'm a bit jealous for you guys, so I'm just kind of thinking, we've got it right. We're doing good. Sorry, it's a bit of... That's my church. There's always room for improvement. Yes, you're right, Rebecca. There's no doubt about it. But you know what? We're doing well. That should just spur us on to do better. Amen? So, this week, if there's someone that you know, you've had a bit of a rocky road with, 
doesn't mean you have to be best pals, but you are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Seek them out and just say, hey, let's start again. Hey, love you. I really do. I sometimes can't stand you. Sorry. Don't take it personally. But I really want to work with you. Because here's where God's called us to be. And here's where we want to see his kingdom grow. And here we want to see an impact crater bigger than Mount Rangitoto or whatever that mountain's called in Auckland that I climbed once and should never have done. We want something that big an impact in this city. Amen? I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. Let's pray. Father God, uh, just now, Lord God, if there's anyone in this room that has something they need to say to their brother or sister uh, here in this place, Lord, just put it upon their hearts. May they seek them out, not just tomorrow or the day after, but today. Um, Let's level the playing ground. Let's clear the walls of any kind of cracks And Holy Spirit, heal any kind of affliction, anger, or pain. We ask that you just heal the hearts that need to be healed right now, Lord. Holy Spirit, just guide us. Put on our hearts the people we need to go see and talk to. Put it on our hearts, Lord, that, you know, what we need to say, what responsibility we need to take. Because we're all broken people here. None of us here are perfect None of us here are clean of anything. If it weren't for you, Jesus, I don't know where we'd be today. But we have each other. You've called us to this family. And as we will be talking in future weeks, what does that mean to be a family? Help us first, Lord, to be able to confront any kind of brokenness between relationships now. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done here at Apawa. I'm... I'm amazed at how our family works. And even though we're tired and a lot of us have been doing a lot of work and sometimes frustrated too, I know that there's, there's a burden on, on a lot of us here. We, we heard Annette's heart earlier this morning, uh, this morning and, and the burden that she has on her heart to, to see your will be done but needing hands and feet to help her through that. We've heard from other ministries too, Lord, and what they've been doing and what they need. Maybe it's in our hearts if we can't help, but even just give a word of encouragement or support. That means so much. It means so much. Thank you, Father, that, that you are our Father. Not the Father we know here on earth, but you are our Father in heaven, the perfect Father. The Father that loves and cares, the Father that provides and looks after, the Father that supports and uplifts. Not a Father that may abandon or treat us with with rules and regulations but with love with love and openness thank you for that Lord we give this to you in the name of your precious son Jesus Christ Amen